Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So let's get to uh, the headlines that crossed just moments ago. Labor Secretary Alex Acosta resigning within the week after coming under severe criticism over his handling of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, He uh, pleaded guilty in 2008 and got 13 months in jail. Uh, now he is being prosecuted again, Jeffrey Epstein, the financier, uh, by the Southern District of New York. Joining us now, Craig Gordon, Bloomberg, uh, Was- Bloomberg's Washington Bureau Chief. Craig, what do we know so far about why Secretary Acosta is resigning now? I mean, look, we uh, Bloomberg News had reported a few days ago that uh, several people around Donald Trump did not think Acosta would survive the week. Um, obviously, he's caught up very heavily in this Jeffrey Epstein uh, case because he was a U.S. attorney down there in Miami when they cut a pretty a pretty generous plea deal with Jeffrey Epstein on very similar charges related to underage girls and that sort of thing. So I, I think our feeling here in the Bloomberg Washington Bureau was that Acosta was always on borrowed time. Um, people know he went out yesterday and tried to give a kind of a defense of his um, of his handling of that case, saying, you know, he didn't have available to him all the evidence that the New York prosecutors had available to them. I think there's some question of whether that's true or not, honestly. But um, there was also were also some reports that Trump had asked him to go out and kind of make a last stand. Um, I don't think he, he, you know, did a lot to help his case yesterday. And then, uh, you know, the axe fell this morning. Do we know who's going to replace him? Uh, there's an acting labor secretary that will step in um, now, and I, I'm sure Trump will look to to fill the job. You know, for a Republican administration, it's actually a pretty important job. It involves a lot of uh, regulatory issues in terms of businesses, and we all know Trump is a fairly pro-business, anti-regulation sort of president. So obviously, there will be a move to put someone in there with with that, um, with those sort of bona fides. The the thing that apparently angered Trump along the way, even before the Jeffrey Epstein case resurfaced, was that uh, some of the state State AG's attorney general, attorneys general had been thought Acosta was kind of slow walking a, a, an anti-regulation, you know, bill that was kind of sitting on his desk. So we think, you know, again, our reporting shows that Alex Acosta was already a little bit in Trump's doghouse. Trump today said some nice things about him. Our reporting suggested the contrary. And then when the Epstein thing came along, it, it was hard to imagine he could survive that. Again, it's easy in with hindsight to look back at his handling of the case. I don't think Acosta was able to answer some pretty key questions about why a guy who did all the things he's accused of doing, essentially got a 13-month sentence and got to basically leave jail every day and go work at his house. So for most people, even if you don't, you don't have to be have a law degree to kind of question that. And I think Acosta, it would have been really hard for him to get, dig out from under this. Washington Bureau Chief Craig Gordon, thank you so much for the update. U.S. equities climbing to new highs, leaving many fund managers with a rather sick feeling in their stomachs. On one hand, uh, you know, valuations are incredibly high. On the other hand, however, there doesn't seem to be any pressure to push them down. Joining me now, Bruce Biddles, Chief Investment Strategist at Baird. Bruce, thank you for being with me. I'm trying to figure out what could potentially stop this rally that has left the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Dow all uh, at new records. Well, Lisa, you're exactly right. The market continues to press higher, and the pervasive lack of selling is really, really um, amazing. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, the U.S. economy continues to do well, even though it is slowing. Um, and then you have the Federal Reserve Board um, indicating that they'll cut interest rates 25 basis points, perhaps at the end of July, as an insurance policy to keep it going. So, um, And there's been a lot of discussion about uh, shortfall on earnings, of course, but uh, you have to suspect that a lot of that's already built into the market. And um, I'd say, furthermore, uh, the market's not based on, on, on second quarter earnings. The market's looking for third and fourth quarter and maybe even into 2020. So um, I think what's happening here is you've got a decent economy and you've got a friendly Federal Reserve Board and you've got the best economy in the world. And so it's, it's being reflected in the stock market. So you're bullish. Yeah, I, I can't see why you couldn't suspect the market can continue to go higher. Now, with that said, we're already up over 20% for the year in, in the big averages. Um, my suspicion is that uh, we're up touch overbought here, of course, uh, as a result of that. And uh, the third quarter typically is a difficult quarter seasonally for the market. And I wouldn't be surprised if we had some sort of consolidation, even a pullback in the third quarter. Now, if, if that should occur, I think that would set us up for what we for a mirror image this year of what we saw last year. In other words, a good rally in uh, November and December to finish out the year. So how much is the rally in equities dependent on the Federal Reserve cutting rates at least two times before year end? Well, I suspect a, a lot because, I mean, the markets turned around uh, in January of this year based on the Federal Reserve Board moving 180 degrees away from, you know, tightening policy. So, um, and I think that's continuing in, in, into this year and, and perhaps will go into 2020 as well. But um, a lot of the market this year, and, and, and the reason for that is um, it's not the rate cut so much that drives the market. It's the psychology of the rate cut. It builds confidence among investors. And in terms of the economy, it builds confidence in terms of the consumer. So um, the rate cuts uh, by themselves are not the magic ointment, but I think it's the confidence that they, they uh, instill in the investors that causes these markets to do much better. So, so given those comments, do you favor consumer stocks more than others just because this uh, potentially the rate cuts give a boost disproportionately to the consumer? Well, for, for most of this year, we favored defensive sectors simply because we felt the economy was slowing and that's where the earnings visibility would be. And that's where larger dividend payouts are. And that's been true so far. They continue to be very strong in this environment. But if the economy is going to, to improve later this year, it should certainly show up in two areas. One would be the consumer discretionary sector. Uh, that should uh, do much better. And if you look at some of these retail stocks, uh, the big box retailers, they're making new highs here uh, this week. So uh, consumer discretionary certainly is a place to go, and I would think uh, the industrials would also be uh, another area that has lagged, but, um, but, but I think it will do much better as the year progresses. On the flip side, are you cashing out of utilities and REITs and other haven bets that have been bid up tremendously? No, not really, because we think that the best portfolio configuration right now is, is a diversified one. And the reason we say that is there are still certain unknowns out there. 
Um, the, the Fed is concerned about the global economy, and we think rightfully so. If that would continue to deteriorate, it, it could cause our economy to slow even further. So we don't want to put too much emphasis on on, on economic growth yet. And, and, and also the unknowns over the trade war with China and, and perhaps even Europe. So um, I think there's a real reason to have a diversified portfolio. You might even consider having a small portion of your principal in, in, in gold stocks, which have broken out, and perhaps that's reflecting the instability in the global economy as well. I suspected you were going to mention gold, and I actually wonder when you say diversified, whether investors are as diversified as they have been traditionally by holding a 60-40, 60 stocks, 40 uh, bonds type of allocation, given the fact that uh, bond yields have dropped as stock prices have risen, that could reverse, stock prices could drop as bond yields rise, and then you have no diversification. Is that a concern of yours? Yes, it is a concern of mine, and particularly since passive investing now has become so popular. And uh, a lot of that is, means that a lot of investors are concentrated in the same issues, the ones that have been outperforming, the ones that are in most of the ETFs that have outperformed. So um, I, I think it um, would be prudent here to certainly look over a portfolio and look to diversify more than you think you might be. And when you talk about diversifying, you talk about gold. A lot of other people have talked about alternative assets, things like real estate, uh, sort of tangibles, and private debt, private equity, uh, infrastructure funds. These are the types of areas people have gone. Do you think that that is advisable uh, for people to just even consider? Well, for the average investor, I'd say no because of the liquidity factor. I, I think in, at this juncture, when you look at valuations in the U.S. and you look at valuations overseas, the overseas valuations are much more attractive. And uh, so when we talk about diversification, we'd also talk about uh, moving outside the U.S. in terms of equities. So you think that that's the way to diversify is, uh, is international. Is there any particular region that you think is uh, the best bet? Well, you know, Europe is so um, so out of favor here, and the valuations are, are, are particularly attractive there. And I'd say also emerging markets. I mean, they haven't done really much despite a lot of um, support from analysts, and, and yet they haven't done a whole lot yet. But I think there's a possibility that the U.S. continues to do well, the dollar weakens some, and interest rates remain low, that emerging markets could be another place to go as well. Bruce Biddles, thank you so much for being with me today. Bruce Biddles, Chief Investment Strategist at Baird, talking about the conundrum right now. Do you buy or do not to buy uh, U.S. equities at all-time highs, given the fact that the Federal Reserve and President Trump seem uh, to want to support valuations, even at a time when the credit cycle feels long in the tooth? Is it? That's another, uh, uh, that's another point of debate. Right now, let's turn our focus to U.S. economic data. This morning, we got another measure of U.S. inflation that came in better than expected. Kara Kadana, our uh, chief U.S. economist here at Bloomberg Economics, joins me here in New York. So uh, this is the producer price index. It came in uh, faster than expected in June. How much can we say from this and what we heard uh, with this or what we saw with the CPI coming in also higher than expected? Are we seeing more inflation that people realize? 
Well, I think we're getting vindication that the uh, soft patch on the inflation front uh, earlier this year was indeed uh, temporary, transitory. Uh, pick your uh, word choice uh, there. Jay Powell would say transitory. Yes, so- Jay Powell and Janet Yellen like that word, uh, transitory. Uh, they they initially characterized it that way, and then we, the, the soft patch went on for longer than they anticipated, and so they started to uh, get uh, cold feet uh, on that notion and had backed away from that rhetoric. And finally, just as they uh, were ready to throw in the, uh, the towel on this, and uh, Jay Powell, uh, even uh, in his testimony uh, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, highlighted that uh, maybe this transitory patch was uh, uh, not so transitory. Uh, then suddenly we get the CPI report and we do see things bouncing back. Although, again, we shouldn't have panicked when we saw the soft patch earlier this year because there were some one-off items, things like uh, the, the classification of apparel prices, uh, the, the way they collected the data changed and maybe was part of the story there. Uh, also, uh, some of the strength we saw yesterday Yesterday, uh, seemed to be uh, one-off categories. Uh, and this was something that uh, Tom Barkin from the Richmond Fed uh, illustrated. Uh, inflation will look more convincing to the Fed that it has uh, rebounded if you see it in service categories driven by labor costs and wage pressures. That's not what we saw yesterday. We saw yeah. uh, service CPI kind of continuing to trend sideways. Okay, so then where are we seeing the gains? Uh, well, what we saw in yesterday's uh, CPI was uh, really a bounce back in uh, goods prices. Uh, and goods prices had been really taking it on the chin, uh, due in large part to uh, global overcapacity and also the strength of the dollar, right? A strong dollar yeah. pushes down import prices. Import prices have been in decline. That's weighing on goods in the CPI basket. Uh, and we saw a little bit of respite on that front yesterday. Now, if the dollar continues to come off, as the Fed is moving towards easier policy, which that's a big if at this right. point, but that certainly has been the trend uh, over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> right. Uh, and so uh, if the dollar does uh, weaken moderately as the Fed is easing at the end of this month, and then my team thinks one more time uh, at the end of this year uh, at the December FOMC meeting, uh, then that will put a little bit of upward pressure under import prices, goods, and it will push core inflation closer to the Fed's objective. Okay, how much is what we're seeing in terms of uh, producer prices increasing just simply due to the tariffs? Well, there's a tariff impact there to some degree, uh, but uh, we have to be very cautious in uh, blaming all price increases everywhere no, uh, due to uh, tariffs. I'm not, not, not to say blaming, but sure. the fact that you're seeing the increase in stuff, in the goods of stuff rather than the prices that people are willing to pay for uh, a service, it, it seems like perhaps that asymmetry it is tied directly to some of the trade tensions and the, and the resulting levies. We, we, you know, with with the changes uh, to trade policy earlier this year, uh, you are still seeing that those price pressures kind of coming down the pipeline. So, you know, for instance, in the CPI, we could see uh, uh, furniture and household furnishings was one category which really seems to be accelerating. Uh, that obviously uh, would be very clearly tied into uh, uh, tariff policy and whatnot. Uh, but that doesn't uh, entirely explain uh, what's happening here. Uh, we have an economy uh, that was operating well above its potential growth rate last year, uh, continues to be above that uh, potential growth rate uh, in 2019, and that in and of itself generates inflation. I guess that without wage pressure, this is not good inflation, right? I'm going to stop you at without wage pressure, because if we look at the employment cost index, average hourly earnings, uh, many of the metrics of uh, wage 
inflation uh, that we watch uh, for the economy, they're all very close to post-recession highs. Mm -hmm. So yes, they've been a little bit cool in recent months and kind of migrating sideways rather than accelerating to new record highs. Uh, But nonetheless, they are still close to record highs. So we're seeing the hottest labor cost pressures in 2019 that we have in any year of this cycle. So that mitigates some of the prices on goods that have been increasing. People are getting higher paychecks. They're just not accelerating perhaps as fast as that's why some of these price increases can be sustained. If workers are getting higher paychecks, they have more buying power, and they're more likely to tolerate uh, those uh, price increases that come down the pipeline. Carver Kadana, are you willing to tolerate higher prices for diapers and formula? <laughs> for, though, I consider those essentials. Yes, so. absolutely. <laughs> those are not discretionary items. Not for you, items. for your child. Carver uh, Kadana, <laughs> Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Always a pleasure. We love having you. Thank you for being here. Amazon calls it a holiday. The rest of us call it a big sale. Amazon Prime Day coming up on Monday and Tuesday. Joining us now to talk about what we can expect, what Amazon is going to try to push uh, the most for people to buy. Spencer Soper joins us now, Bloomberg Technology reporter. So Spencer, just give us a sense of how Amazon is viewing this Prime Day. Is this Prime Day different from all other Prime Days? No, and that's really what's new about it this year. Um, so th- we're now in its fifth year. Uh, they started it, uh, you know, as a way to kind of entice um, new Prime members to join, encourage existing Prime members to renew their memberships. That's really what this is all about: is getting people to join Prime because it, you know, if you're a Prime member, it converts you from a, you know, an occasional Amazon shopper into a devoted shopper. And Prime members spend, you know, between two and three times as much on the site as non-Prime members. So forget how much they're selling, what the deals are today. All of that's not really important. The biggest thing for Amazon is how many new members sign up. That's what the day's always about and what it's uh, what it's still about this year. Has Amazon reached saturation point where the uh, new potential subscribers is kind of well, limited? Yeah, that's the problem. It's in the U.S. and its core, you know, its primary market of the U.S. is definitely showing signs of reaching saturation. That prime member growth is is slowing. Um, one interesting thing that we saw is they're offering. Uh, uh, millennials in India, which is a big international focus for them, uh, half price on Prime memberships. So they're really, you know, there's definitely an, an, you know, we're focused on kind of all the U.S. marketing and the deals and that sort of thing. But really, for Amazon to keep growing Prime memberships, it has to, it has to look globally, and that's what it's doing with this half priced membership option in, in India. You know, it's interesting. This Amazon Prime Day comes at an increasing politicized uh, environment for Amazon, in particular, uh, Amazon warehouse workers have been protesting in Minnesota. Uh, Amazon, I I would suppose that it is a response to that coming out with this big retraining plan saying, look, uh, we are going to take people who are at low wage earning jobs and try to retrain them into higher uh, paying ones. How is Amazon trying to position itself ahead of the 2020 elections right now in light of some of these pressures? Well, I mean, I don't know if they're positioning themselves in front of anything. They seem to be reacting to everything, like the the $15 an hour pledge uh, that came last year followed a lot of criticism from presidential hopefuls uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And there were, you know, uh, states were reporting that, uh, you know, they're – that Amazon employees were among their biggest groups of uh, 
food stamp recipients and people needing assistance for basic needs like health care and stuff. So they really had to kind of react to, to, to those negative headlines. Um, and now with the training, it, one of my colleagues, Eric Newcomer, did something uh, today just looking at the uh, – Train, you know, it's really not that much that Amazon is spending when when you break down the numbers. It's a big figure, 700 million, because Amazon's so big. But when you look at the per employee spending, it's actually less than a lot of companies pay per year to train their people. So um, you, even that, it's Amazon just kind of dressing up uh, some numbers around its size as opposed to actually doing anything differently. You know, Spencer, it's one thing uh, for people to pick it uh, pick it against Amazon. It's another thing for them to stop buying things on the platform. Is there any evidence that Amazon has lost business as a result of some of these political issues? Uh, not, not that I can see. I mean, if anything, it's it's just that they're a victim of their success. They've gotten so big that growth is slowing. You know, e-commerce is its primary business. It's its oldest business and its most mature business. And that's where the revenue growth is slowing down. Uh, you know, whether whether the uh, these political protests and things are moving the needle much on that, I, I you know, I'm, I'm really not sure. But Amazon is also generally reactive to customer feedback. So if there's a, you know, flood of emails to Jeff Bezos about like, hey, I, I hear your workers are getting food stamps and I don't like it. That's the kind of thing that's going to trigger the, the $15 an hour wage pledge and, and, and that sort of thing. So I'm sure it's influencing their decision making, but whether it's denting their you know, actual um, revenue, I, I, I just don't know. Spencer, I, I'm just curious, lastly, uh, whether Amazon is going to uh, push its own products more than other products on Amazon Prime Day. In other words, uh, sort of rank them higher in its algorithms so that people buy uh, Amazon-sourced products. That'll be interesting to watch. I mean, they always put an emphasis on their gadgets, right? In the past couple of years, they've really pushed the, you know, the the uh, Echo speakers, you know, that operate on the Alexa voice-activated platform. That's something that Amazon is really pushing, and they've made that a focus of Prime Day the past couple of years. So that's not that's not new. And I think what you're asking is more like their private label products, like Correct. you know, you're you're looking for a, you know, oh, can I get a deal on Johnson and Johnson baby shampoo? Am I going to see some Amazon alternative? And and, uh, and you very likely see that, and you may not even know that it's an Amazon brand because it could have some funky name like Solimo or something. That <laughs> <laughs> you're just, you know, they, they've they've launched hundreds of the of these things. So um, yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's definitely a good chance you're you're seeing those things in your search results. So just be be mindful. And I think Amazon is just hoping that people aren't so uh, brand beholden. And if they can save, you know, save a couple bucks, they might give a give something else a chance. And then if then then maybe they end up being uh, loyal to. to a new Amazon brand. Spencer Soper, thank you so much for being with us. Spencer Soper is Bloomberg Technology reporter. Amazon shares up about a half a percentage point today for the year, up 34%, a real uh, boom for this big tech company in a year when tech has continued to drive uh, U.S. equity gains higher. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramo. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.